Last week, the North Carolina Supreme Court agreed to rehear a case that struck down the state's redistricting maps under the state constitution. The outcome of the decision could affect another case already in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, Moore versus Harper. That's the challenge to a decision striking down North Carolina's redistricting maps that involves the independent state legislature doctrine. Why did the North Carolina Supreme Court strike down the maps in the first place, and why is it revisiting that decision now? Will the U.S. Supreme Court still decide the Moore case and rule on the independent state legislature doctrine? And what standards should be used to decide whether redistricting maps are politically gerrymandered? Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. To help us understand the latest developments in these important gerrymandering cases, we're joined by two of America's leading election scholars. Misha Zaitlin is a partner at the law firm Trotman Pepper. He argued and won the 2018 partisan gerrymandering case Gill versus Whitford before the U.S. Supreme Court. And he filed a friend of the court brief in Moore versus Harper, as well as another major gerrymandering case, Rucho versus Common Cause. Micha, it's wonderful to welcome you to We the People. Thank you for having me. And Guy Uriel Charles is the Charles J. Ogletree Jr. Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. He also filed a friend of the court brief in Rucho versus Common Cause. Uh, Guy, it's wonderful to have you back with the NCC. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Let's jump into the First question under discussion, uh, Misha, why did the North Carolina Supreme Court strike down the maps in the first place, and why is it revisiting that decision now? So the North Carolina Supreme Court read into the certain broad phrases in the North Carolina Constitution a state law prohibition against partisan gerrymandering. And it then applied that prohibition that it read into the North Carolina Constitution to invalidate uh, uh, several of the maps, including the congressional maps. Recently, the the North Carolina Supreme Court granted rehearing as to whether it it should maintain that rule um, that the the court had previously read into the North Carolina Constitution prohibiting partisan gerrymandering. Those are all arguments were held recently, and a decision is expected in the next couple of months. Guy, um, can you give us more detail about why the court initially struck down the maps under the North Carolina Constitution and and why many folks think that the, the justices might reconsider their decision? Sure. So Article 1, Section 10 of the North Carolina Constitution provides a guarantee uh, that all elections shall be free, all elections in the state shall be free. Um, And this raises a number of uh, questions. One is, what does this provision mean? Um, Or specifically, does it apply to the composition of district lines? Uh, The second question uh, is whether the provision is judicially uh, enforceable? Is it justiciable? And then the third uh, goes to the elections clause question, whether the U.S. Constitution, the elections clause, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, imposes a limit on what the state Supreme Court can do because the power to draw electoral lines for congressional districts is given to the state legislature And the argument would be that there are no state limits that can be imposed on the legislature. So three questions. Look, what does this provision mean? Does it apply to 
um, the way lines are drawn for congressional districts. And if even if it does, does the U.S. Constitution prohibit the state Supreme Court from enforcing this provision if they think that it applies? Um, so if you want to take, you know, taking the first question, the North Carolina Supreme Court said, look, uh, this provision, all elections, just guarantee all elections shall be free, does impose a limit on what the legislature can do. They said we they've interpreted that provision in the context of malapportionment uh, and partisan gerrymandering is analogous and very similar. Um, all elections must be free. The court said means that every vote must count equally. And when you malapportion or you gerrymander a district, every vote does not count equally. Therefore, the guarantee that every a North Carolina citizen has is violated by malapportioned or by gerrymandered partisan ger districts that are gerrymandered on partisan grounds. Um, and so uh, there's a violation. Partisan gerrymandering violates the constitutional guarantee. And the court also now then goes to the second question, is that guarantee judicially enforceable? That is, right, does do the courts or does the court have a responsibility. The Constitution provide the courts a responsibility for enforcing that guarantee. And the court said, yes, uh, the Constitution did provide us with the responsibility for enforcing that guarantee. And we have the right to look at these maps and to determine whether they violate the constitutional guarantee of um, free and fair, or in this case, fair, uh, free elections. Uh, and the court held that the district's uh, partisan, uh, these districts, in fact, uh, violated the guarantee, and therefore, under the North Carolina Constitution, they were unconstitutional. Thank you so much for summarizing the North Carolina decisions so clearly. Uh, Misha, you've argued in your amicus brief that the court should apply a clear statement rule, and the state can only use its lawmaking process to prohibit partisan gerrymandering if it expresses its intention in unambiguous statutory or constitutional text. Tell us more about that proposal and why you think the North Carolina court was wrong to strike down partisan gerrymandering under the Free and Fair Elections Clause. Well, thank you, Jeff. And, and just to be clear, we filed a brief in support of neither party in the, in the Morris-Harper case. So I'd like to take a step back to how we got to where the state Supreme Courts are the ones that are generally attempting to engage with partisan gerrymandering. What the U.S. Supreme Court held uh, in Ruccio, uh, which was also a case out of North Carolina, is that the U.S. Constitution does not have within it any judicially manageable standards to judge whether a map is too partisan. Politicians do political things, and the, and the Supreme Court said there was nothing in the U.S. Constitution that governed whether a map was too political or not. But what the U.S. Supreme Court importantly thereafter said is that this issue can be dealt with at the state level. If states choose to combat partisan gerrymandering, they can, for example, enact specific prohibitions against partisan gerrymandering in their state constitutions or the state laws, as many states have, or they can adopt redistrict, independent redistricting commissions or other mechanisms. So then the question became, what, what were states going to do? And before and in response to Ruccio, many states, in fact, went through the work of using the state's lawmaking process, usually the constitutional amendment process, to prohibit 
partisan gerrymandering as a matter of their state constitution. The problem that one could arguably say arises in North Carolina is that the people of North Carolina, through the lawmaking process, did not outlaw partisan gerrymandering. So the court read into this very broad phrase, free free election clause, free and equal, uh, the, the prohibition against partisan gerrymandering. And what we were saying in that amicus brief is if the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution, which uh, unless Congress acts, gives state legislatures the authority over congressional elections, not state legislative elections, means anything, is that you can have other aspects of state government, including state courts, basically taking over uh, that, that function. Now, what we said is that does not mean that what the court, U.S. Supreme Court told the states in Ruccio was wrong. That is to say, the Supreme Court told the states, says, you can deal with the issue of partisan gerrymandering. So what we, what we said is the state needs to act through its lawmaking process, which the U.S. Supreme Court had held in the uh, Arizona state legislature case a couple of years back, includes the referendum process. To take some of the uh, the prohibition, to take some of the prohibition against gerrymandering and make it enforceable against the state legislature. But we said it is it is troubling and perhaps a violation of the U.S. Constitution, uh, the election clause in particular, if the state court, not having that clear statement coming from the people, takes it upon itself to essentially uh, legislate a prohibition against partisan gerrymandering in these uh, vague phrases. Now, the reason that I said that we filed a brief in neither party is there were some arguments in the North Carolina case that didn't get as much prominence that there were specific features of North Carolina's state statutes that allowed courts to do what they did here. And, you know, we were writing an amicus brief um, that would impact the rule that would apply to the whole country. So then we didn't want to take a position on what those particular state law provisions in North Carolina law did or didn't um, authorize the North Carolina Supreme Court to do, to do, but we didn't want to give the court a middle ground between the two extremes that we saw were being proposed in that case. The one extreme basically being nullifying that promise of Ruccio that states could effectively outlaw uh, partisan gerrymandering. Um, and then the other extreme, which is that the elections clause use of the, of the legislatures that are all frames is essentially meaningless. So we tried to give the court a middle ground. And the other thing we pointed out is that because states have been so um, comprehensive and engaging on this issue, um, all but almost every single case that you that you read about that has partisan gerrymandering uh, being struck down at the state level does come from a specific prohibition against partisan gerrymandering, like the case that we litigated in New York State. It's only a, a couple of scattered cases over the last uh, two decades that that really tried to use these broad, big phrases to try to deal with partisan gerrymandering, not based on a specific prohibition that was uh, enacted by the people of that relevant state. Guy, in your article, The Law of Gerrymandering, and in important amicus briefs, you've pointed to many constitutional provisions that might regulate partisan gerrymandering, including the Republican Form of Government Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, the First Amendment, the election clause, and state constitutions. When you look at what North Carolina 
has done, do you think that it's acting uh, consistent with other states when it struck down partisan gerrymandering under the free and fair elections clause? Or do you agree with Misha that there should be a clear statement rule in order to justify court action? Um, I don't think I agree with Misha because I don't know where the requirement of a clear statement rule would come from. So here's how I understand what the court said in Rucho. Uh, hey, we, the federal constitutional system, um, especially through the courts, we don't believe that we have the authority and the power to deal with this. Uh, we think that the constitutional framework left it to the states and the states, including the state system. Um, and the court has already held for in the Arizona case that that includes a referenda from the states that, that that citizens can pass a law limiting partisan gerrymandering. It held a long time ago in Smiley versus Home in 1932 that the executive can weigh in. Um, right. And so I understood the court in Rucho to say, look, whatever processes that the state wants to use and that which does not negate or exclude the state Supreme Courts from doing what they normally do, which is to interpret the state constitutions and to say, this is what our state constitutions mean. Um, And just in the same way that the U.S. Supreme Court interprets the U.S. Constitution and says, this is what the U.S. Constitution means. And if the state Supreme Court, in this case, North Carolina, believes that Article 1, Section 10 of its Constitution means that partisan gerrymandering violates the free election guarantee. Um, I don't know how anybody else has a basis, whether it's the U.S. Supreme Court or whether it's me or whether it's Misha, of saying, no, 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 before you go down that route, these are the hoops that you must jump through. That was not what was prescribed by Rucho. Rucho simply left it to our federalism system, which is going to mean that some states are going to do are going to do this through referenda and initiatives. Other states are going to do it through their state legislatures. Other states are not going to do anything at all. And other states are going, it's going to be their state Supreme Courts that are going to address these types of issues. That's sort of like the decentralized federal process that we have. And there doesn't seem to me to be a justification for saying that the elections clause, um, especially when the court has already held that the executive can um, engage in that process. And sort of like odd then to say that the organ that is has a primary responsibility for interpreting the state constitution does not have, either does not have a say or must have a say only in these specific circumstances. I don't know where the basis for that comes from or would come from. It certainly doesn't come from the U.S. Supreme Court um, or, or, or U.S. constitutional law. And if it has no basis in the state's law, um, then we're just simply making it up and imposing a limitation. So under our federalism system, I think that's up to the states to decide how they want to, how they want to deal with it. That's where the Supreme Court left it. And I'm perfectly fine with, I would have preferred a different outcome in Rucho, but given the outcome that we have, what North Carolina did seems to me to be perfectly consistent with what state Supreme Courts have always done. Misha Giurel says that uh, the requirement of a clear statement rule authorizing the regulation of partisan gerrymandering by the state doesn't come from uh, the U.S. Constitution or from state constitutions. Where do you think it comes from? And tell us about that New York case you mentioned where there was a clear statement rule. 
Right. So the dispute before the U.S. Supreme Court is only about the limits uh, that are on states, including state state courts, when you're dealing with congressional elections. There is everything that, uh, that Guy said about our federalism system. It is, I think, it is undisputed that with regard to the state state legislative lines, the Supreme Court of a state, to the extent that's permissible under the state law, can can do can do what it will. The, the fundamental difference is when you're talking about congressional lines, that is an authority not of the state under its state constitution. That is an authority given to the state legislature by the U.S. Constitution. So when a state legislature adopts congressional lines, it's not, it's not acting under a power given to it by its state constitution. It's acting under a power given to it by the U.S. Constitution. And one of the reasons we know that is the Elections Clause actually says that Congress can override any of this stuff. So if Congress wants to enact a prohibition against partisan gerrymandering under the Elections Clause, it could override a state state Supreme Court um, contrary interpretation saying that that would be unconstitutional under our state constitution. So this is, a, this is a, a, a federal power that a state is using when it's enacting when it's enacting congressional lines. So when you have a federal power, you have to look at what limits are given to the state when it when it's, when it's given that power by the federal constitution. And what the constitution says is that the, the elections are, are unless Congress provides otherwise are determined not by the state and generally by the by, by the legislature thereof. So then that's why you get the extreme rule proposed by the petitioners um, in, in this case, which says that means the court should have no role whatsoever. But then that's where the Arizona state legislature case comes in, which is the Arizona state legislature case said that, and there was a dissent, but it's settled law now, said that when you have a referendum process, that is the legislature. That is within the original public meaning of legislature, the referendum pl- process includes the legislature. And, and, and Guy mentioned the governor's involvement. That's just the governor, Supreme Court saying the governor can, can veto legislations, uh, legislation at the state level and being compliance with the access clause. Of course, a veto is traditionally thought of as part of the legislative process. The fundamental difference that you have when you have a court using these broad phrases is no, that is no part of the legislative process. That's the, that's the court speaking. So where does this clear statement uh, rule come from? Well, frankly, it's trying to draw a middle ground because there is there are two very extreme positions that are being put before the court. One is this, this notion that court, state courts have no authority to get involved whatsoever, even if the people using the legis- legislative process as defined by the Supreme Court through a referendum say, no partisan gerrymandering, which is which is one of the case that, that we litigated in New York, which I'll talk about in a minute. The other extreme is that the, the fact that the, the, the Constitution in the Elections Clause, in giving this power to the states, use the state legislature, doesn't have any meaning. You could just write, blue pencil out state legislature and write in the state, and it would have the same meaning. So we thought that either of those extremes was an untenable result, and we thought our proposal of a middle ground was very sensible because it gave some meaning to the clause, but it also allowed the court to keep the promise that it made to the states in Rucho. And also, by the way, it wouldn't impact many cases at all. Most states have that whose courts have dealt with these issues are doing so under a specific state law prohibition. 
And that's what we were dealing with in New York. What happened in New York is that in 2014, the people of New York um, adopted a constitutional amendment, which was submitted to them by the state legislature, that was a comprehensive prohibition against partisan gerrymandering. This It set up a, a two-step commission process to channel the, the redistricting process through a body that was going to be uh, politically divided uh, and, and therefore hopefully to produce um, a compromise result. And thereafter, at the back end, it had an, an explicit prohibition against dropping any lines uh, that favored any political party or disfavored any political party, incumbent, or competition. So there you have the people through the lawmaking process, as blessed by the Arizona State Legislature case, prohibiting partisan gerrymandering. And so what happened in, in New York in the very first election cycle after the people adopted overwhelmingly this prohibition against partisan gerrymandering is that the legislature essentially sabotaged the commission process and then ad adopted what folks across the political spectrum um, identified as you know perhaps the most egregious gerrymander in the country. We litigated that case, and because there were clear judicially clear standards that were set out by the people uh, in the state constitution, we had a five-two ruling from the state's courts, from the state's highest court, the court of appeals, striking down this partisan gerrymander. And what I thought was so heartening about that case was even though the party that had enacted the partisan gerrymander, who was in control in New York, uh, which was the Democratic Party, um, enacted it, all seven judges on the Court of Appeals in New York, they're called judges in New York, were appointed by Democratic governors, and they still struck down that map five to two. I think that shows the benefit of acting under a clear directive from the people rather than you know, kind of making it up from broad phrases uh, in a, which often and almost always ends up uh, dividing among political lines of those who are appointed by the relevant uh, governor or elected under a, what everybody in the state knew was a frankly partisan uh, uh, state Supreme Court election. Thank you for uh, noting the New York case. Guy, uh, Misha points to New York as an example of clear standards for evaluating gerrymandering in the state constitution. What standards did North Carolina use in interpreting its free and fair election clause? And, and what have other states without clear mandates in their constitutions used post-Rucho? I'll, I'll note that in your Rucho brief, you talked about the need for a statistical model to compare neutral with non-neutral maps. What, what, what kind of standards are, are state courts using? So a couple of things. And first, just to uh, respond in some ways to something that Misha said, I certainly admire and like the idea of trying to impose uh, some type of a limitation here. And I think if this were a congressional statute that said, look, there must be a clear statement rule, um, I could see the authority and the basis for it. And I think that strikes as a as a wonderful avenue for imposing some type of a limitation, given that Congress does have supervisory authority with respect to um, congressional uh, elections. Um, the problem, though, is uh, that we're not talking about a congressional statute. 
um, we really are talking about um, a, a rule that is imposed, and it's not clear exactly from where. Now, if the argument is, look, there's got to be some type of a limit, and my answer would be, yeah, maybe that ought to come from Congress. Maybe that's where the guidance ought, the guidance ought to come from if Congress believes that um, that a limit needs to be imposed here on what the state courts are doing. Um, in many respects, what the state courts are doing, they're doing something that is very much analogous to what the U.S. Supreme Court has done ever since the one person, one vote cases. The question that they're, so they're, they're asking is to what extent when you malapportion or when you gerrymander, when you try to create lines in a way that um, undermines um, the vote of one voter as opposed to another. So in 1944, the United States Supreme Court in uh, United States versus Saylor described the, oh, the right as the right to vote that is uh, that is free from being impaired, lessened, diminished, diluted, and destroyed. You know, so for a very long time, for almost, uh, uh, you know, for about 80 years or so, um, at the very least 60 years or so, we've had this I, this conceptual idea within our jurisdiction or, or jurisprudential system, especially at the federal level, but then eventually at the state level, that, um, that the government dilutes the right to vote uh, when it draws line in a manner that either arbitrarily distinguishes among voters or prefers some voters over others without a significant compelling interest. So that conception is the one that courts have been have been working with. And, and sometimes the, um, that conception is articulated in, in uh, state law. Sometimes it is through a commission process, and sometimes it is interpreted through by the courts themselves. And the distinction, the the the, the one distinction that I have with um, Misha's approach um, is, you know, he's certainly right. The question under the elections clause is, well, when the elections clause says legislature, what does it mean? The court has already interpreted legislature much more broadly, right? To mean, no, no, not just the legislature, to include the people and in initiative and referenda, not just the legislature, to include also the governor. The question then is, right, so because the court is saying, look, we're looking at the state's lawmaking process, and its lawmaking process includes a lot of different components beyond strictly the legislature. And now the question is, does that also include the state Supreme Court? I think it would just be an odd division to say legislature does not mean strictly legislature. It means also the people through an initiative and referendum process. It includes the role of the governor as well, um, but it does not include the, the, the state Supreme Court. That would be inconsistent with the way that we've done American law from basically the very beginning. We recognize that courts have a role to play in the lawmaking process as well. Limited, yes, right? It comes to them and under a certain set of 
uh, circumstances that are very different. The people have a role to play. The governor has a, has a role to play, right? So lots of different parts of it form the lawmaking process. That seems to me to be a much more coherent understanding of the elections clause than one that carves out um, the state that carves out the state Supreme Court, but includes the governor and other organs of the lawmaking process. And it seems to me that the state Supreme Courts are following um, the guidance of the U.S. Supreme Court and the one person, one vote cases to think about what does vote dilution mean? And they've articulated a legal standard. And then the question is, okay, um, do we have a method of proving of showing the constitutional violation. So in the brief that uh, mathematician Moon Duchin and I filed and Rucho, uh, she and others have developed a mathematical method, the ensemble method, to identify the constitutional violation. It isn't saying that it is the constitutional violation. It's saying, okay, how do we prove, how do we show that there has been vote dilution, which is something that experts do and many, many contexts where there's a legal standard. And then the question is, how do we show that that legal standard has been violated? And there are methods available. So my preferred one is the ensemble method to identify the legal violation and to show that something has been gerrymandered in a way that is that is inconsistent with the legal standard. Misha, in Rucho, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the idea that there was a federal right against vote dilution on the grounds that there was no means of identifying it that was uh, predictable and, and coherent. Do you agree with Guy that uh, there is broadly a right recognized by state courts uh, over the past 60 years that forbids arbitrary distinction among voters or preferring voters without compelling interests? And do you think that, there, that methods like the ensemble method might plausibly identify vote dilution or not? So uh, I, I I agree with half of uh, what he was saying and disagree uh, with the other half. I, I will just I will start with the disagreement. I do not believe that notions of vote dilution, that is literally you have one person's vote counting more than the other, have any um, kind of analog to partisan gerrymandering. Uh, I think that's just trying to uh, put a put a square peg in a round hole or or vice versa, and that is what. You know, we argued in both Ruccio and Gill. And, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, Gill was the precursor case to Ruccio and the the um, the advocates on the other side there argued, well, this this concept called the efficiency gap. It defines what is unconstitutional. And then and then they got to the U.S. Supreme Court and they they changed they changed tax. They started pointing to other methods. So So I think that shows that the notion that you know, one person, one vote, which is a very easy concept to understand. Everyone's got, everyone's got a vote, got to count the same. You can't have rotten boroughs. You can't have, you know, 50,000 people in one district and 20,000 people in another, and they get the same representatives. I think that's a clear concept, whereas political advantage is definitely, and what is the standard for a political advantage when you're talking about phrases like free and equal or equal protection clause? I think that's very different. However, some states, like New York, have prohibited partisan gerrymandering. So you don't have to get into these theoretical questions about what is about whether this is a violation of equal protection principles or a fee equal principles. There, you just have a prohibition, and the court's job 
when the people enact a prohibition against partisan gerrymandering is to do their best. And under the current state of the art in social science, the ensemble method uh, is the best state of the art for, for identifying what is an outlier, for, for what is an outlier to be expect, uh, outlier from what you would expect if you didn't have map drawers drawing to partisan advantage. And the way, and there are various ways to do the ensemble method, but generally the way it works is you tell a computer, draw some, draw 50,000 maps, 100,000 maps, million maps. And the you tell the computer, you could take into account this factor, this factor in state law, um, you know, uh, contiguity, compactness, um, you know, uh, population deviation when you're talking about state uh, state legislative lines because the population deviation of congressional lines has to be zero. You put all of these in, and then the computers, and then there are various methods for computers doing basically randomize and create large numbers of maps. And then you plot those maps on a, on a chart, and then you plot the actual adopted map. And if you see that the actual adopted map is a significant outlier, then you might, then you have a, a strong suspicion that something beyond neutral, nonpartisan map drawing is going on. And then you also look, and then once you have that important clue, then you look at the political process, you see if the party out of power was excluded from the process, their ideas were taken into account. And there you can identify as best the current state of the art allows what is probably a partisan gerrymander. Now, again, when we were litigating uh, Gill in, in, in 2018, the ensemble method wasn't was just in the beginning phases and then more crude methods were being used. So perhaps in 10 years, there'll be an even a different, more sophisticated method than even this ensemble method to identify partisan gerrymandering as prohibited in some states' constitutions. But right now, I do think that the state of the art is the ensemble method. And perhaps he was a little ahead of, ahead of the bell curve when he was in Ruccio. Certainly we use the ensemble method as our primary uh, social science method in the in the New York, in the Harkin-Ryder case. And the, the courts did find that, that analysis persuasive. Wow, well, it sounds like Guy was indeed ahead of the curve. And, and, and Guy, um, first of all, of course, I'll ask, given the, what appears to be an emerging consensus around the ensemble method, you think the court, of course, was wrong in, in Rucho to reject it as a federal touchstone for partisan gerrymandering. But tell us how the ensemble method would apply in North Carolina. Would it find an unconstitutional gerrymander or not? And given the availability of the ensemble method, is this something that other states can apply in regulating partisan gerrymandering? And are they applying it? Well, first, um, you know, I, Misha and I are, I think, in, in agreement on the ensemble method being the state of the art. Um, and I should give credit to Moon Duchin, the mathematician we work with on, on this brief. Um, and certainly from my perspective, the ensemble method is superiorly, you know, the, I think, I think part of the strategic mistake of the people who were on my side arguing in favor of justiciability is reliance upon the efficiency gap. Um, that, you know, that was a, just a strategic mistake. And I think, unfortunately, um, I think uh, colored the courts, you know, maybe the court would have done this anyway, but I think made it made it hard for the court to um, think about these issues in, uh, in, in a more robust way. Um, and I think the, the point that, the one point that I would make is 
there are two questions that I think need to be separated. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of separating them, but I want to be sure that we're clear about that. There's a question of, look, how do we understand and articulate the constitutional standard? And then there's the question of how do you prove the constitutional standard? Part of a mistake that I think both academics and litigators make is they look at the one person, one vote cases, and they say, oh, we need something just like that. But they don't understand that like the court was actually doing two things in the one person, one vote standard. The court was saying, OK, what is the constitutional principle of equality? And then how do we identify it? Now, I think Misha is right. In the case of malapportionment, it's easy to identify it because you can count. You could say, oh, this district only has the great Jeffrey Rosen as, as the person who occupies it. These other ones have a bunch of, you know, there are 10,000 Mishas and Gies in those districts, right? So 110,000, it's pretty clear to us then that, you know, the great Rosen gets to wield a lot of power and those bunch of little Gies and Mishas are, don't get to wield power. Now, in the case of partisan gerrymandering, when you create a district that says, hey, wait a minute, we can create 10 districts, we're going to stuff seven of them with Democrats and three of them with Republicans, I think there it's also, some. it could be pretty clear to see, look, the outcome is preordained. Then there are the tougher cases in which you're trying to, it's not clear that the outcome is preordained, precisely because of the reasons that Misha is saying. You know, what is the population dispersion? What does the geography look like? What are re redistricting principles? And this is where the ensemble method comes into play to help identify and say, oh, no, no, look, we ran the simulation, you know, a trillion times and there's an outlier here. And it's pretty clear that the only explanation for this is because that the Democrats were trying to um, undermine the votes of the Republicans. So there, I think this, this, the same conceptual idea, the same normative idea, the same constitutional idea is equivalent to the uh, one person, one vote. And then the question becomes, how do you show it? And I think we agree. And maybe the move is, is that this is going to happen a lot at the state level. Um, the move is the ensemble method. Uh, and I think the ensemble method does give us a very reliable way. What would it show in North Carolina? I don't know that... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the the lower court, the Supreme Court was convinced that this was a, a gerrymander, but I have not looked at that myself to be able to provide a, a definitive answer. I really need to thank both of you for helping illuminate this consensus around the ensemble method. This is a, a major under, uh, advance in our understanding of a of a nonpartisan way of evaluating uh, partisan gerrymandering, and uh, it's great to have this discussion. Misha, some have suggested that now that the composition of the North Carolina court has changed and is now majority Republican rather than Democratic, the court will uphold the map rather than strike it down. Uh, is that your understanding or not? And what would a principled way of evaluating the North Carolina gerrymander be using the ensemble method or other methods? So this is what I was talking about before with the real danger of what you know, I believe the, the the North Carolina Supreme Court did, and very few courts have actually done this. When you read these broad phrases that have been in the state constitution for, you know, 200 years, never, you know, never did anyone imagine before the last decade that those could be read to prohibit partisan gerrymandering. What you end up as a practical matter is you end up with, with the justices and the elections for the justice being proxies 
for the political process. So, you know, where, whereas what we had in New York was a clear prohibition against partisan gerrymandering right in the state constitution, you could have a situation where you had seven judges appointed by Democrat governors, five of them striking down the um, the map as a partisan gerrymander. I would respectfully submit that that's never going to occur in a state where, frankly, the judges are frustrated by partisan gerrymandering, kind of making it up. And so what happened is that in North Carolina, you had nonpartisan state Supreme Court race, but everyone knew, you know, which side um, you were you were going to vote on what was going to happen. And and then you had the 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 election results that happened and people understood which Supreme Court justice won and which which party they were more aligned to. And then you had the rehearing. You know, we currently have a race right now in Wisconsin where there is no prohibition against partisan gerrymandering in the state constitution, where one of the just, uh, just, judges that wants to be a justice is frankly running a campaign saying, if I win, I'm going to strike down that map. Uh, she was asked at the debate earlier this week, well, you know, you're, you're getting all these donations from the Democratic Party. How can anyone ask you to, to assume that you're going to be a fair judge on this case? And she said in a debate, you know, not hiding the ball. Well, everyone can look at those maps and say they're unfair. So there, and this is exactly, I think, what the majority of the U.S. Supreme Court was worried about in Ruccio, about the courts becoming really politicized. And and whether, you know, and but sometimes, and that, but that's going to happen, you know, when partisan gerrymandering is before the court. And sometimes the people might decide the juice is worth the squeeze. They might say partisan gerrymandering is so bad that we are going to have a, we're going to, risk the courts becoming politicized. I mean, frankly, we had an amazing victory in New York, and it was a, a brave decision by those judges to vote for us. But in the very next um, judge confirmation process, uh, a very well-qualified judge appointed, attempted to be appointed by a Democrat governor was blocked by the state legislature. And everyone understood the subjects of that was they were worried that he was too fair, too neutral, and he wouldn't he wouldn't vote to overturn our decision striking down the maps as a partisan gerrymander. So that's what happens when you when courts are injected into the partisan milieu of gerrymandering. Now, again, if the people want that, if they adopt a constitutional amendment in their state that said courts got to monitor partisan gerrymandering, the sh- courts really do have to enforce it. But courts should be really cautious, as the Supreme Court was, about doing it on their own because we see what's happening in, in states like North Carolina and in states like Wisconsin, where you have the judiciary becoming politicized uh, by being in, injected into this into a very political process and not through the mandate of the people, but by the judges themselves saying they want to be uh, injected into this process. Guy, give us a sense of, of how things are going at the state level post-Rucho. How many state courts are intervening, how effective are they in neutrally evaluating partisan gerrymanders? And what does the future look like post-Rucha? Yeah, so I don't disagree with much of what Misha said. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the implications of the U.S. Supreme Court, its failure to establish a national baseline um, is that things are going to play out in the states and they're going to play out in a lot of different ways. So 
in many respects, we do have, I mean, so some good things have happened. We have a number of states that have resolved this issue through initiatives, referenda, or through um, commissions. Uh, we have some states that have resolved this, that have addressed this question through the state legislature. And then we have then the debate uh, with some states not doing anything and other states um, going through their their courts. And yes, it is true. And in, in a system that the system that we have in which judges at the state level, um, the vast majority of them either are elected directly or um, indirectly first appointed and then elected. Um, these political questions, these political issues, not in the technical sense of the word, but in the vulgar sense of the word, um, these political issues are going to feature in these judicial elections. I think that is a consequence of the failure to constitutionalize those questions and to take them off the table. Um, and I think the system will play it out. And I think the way that it is playing out um, is that we're seeing um, resolution uh, and ways that are, I think are admirable. Again, initiatives, referendum, or through um, commissions, um, through codification. And then there are going to be sort of like a small set of places where, where we're seeing the fight. One, one of the benefits, one could argue the benefits of, of Rucho, one could argue the benefit of judicial non-intervention here is that, look, the political process um, is playing this out at the state level. Aspects of it are going to be a little bit ugly. Um, but there is a lot of progress. And in fact, part of what is great about this area is that we are seeing a slow but definitely emergent national norm um, that targeting the voting rights of your opponents, voters as well as politicians, because of their political identity is inconsistent with a notion of democratic fairness. And now how does that get expressed? Um, right? Does it get expressed through the state constitutions? Does it get expressed through codification? Does it get expressed through uh, initiatives and referenda? Does it get expressed uh, through commissions? Right, Lots of different options for how it gets expressed, but that's kind of what the landscape now looks like. And perhaps in 15 or 20 years, we might look back and we might see the pattern um, and we probably won't have a debate about, in the same way that we don't have a debate about one person, one vote, we won't have a debate about whether it is consistent with democratic fairness to target your opponents because of their political identity. Um, and that seems to be the direction that we're headed. Misha, in one of your Supreme Court oral arguments, you said that there was a danger involving the justices uh, invoking, or as you put it, launching a redistricting revolution based on social science metrics. You'd have federal courts engaging in a battle of the hypothetical experts. Are, are, are you more comfortable with applying the ensemble method at the state level when it's explicitly authorized by uh, state constitutions? You know, look, it's a, it's a balance. I think that the ensemble method does a good job of identifying outliers, of, of helping to identify maps that were drawn with partisan intent. That's what the ensemble method helps to identify by creating these neutral maps. 
However, I do think that the dangers we warned about in Gill and Ruccio have been borne out at the state court level. So I, I, my position is that there is a great danger to any judiciary getting involved in the question of how much politics is too much. Because politics is so powerful, so pervasive, and even if you have judges like in New York who just do a really neutral, amazing job, it's, it's a feedback loop. We basically had the Democratic Party of New York launch an attack on the judges appointed by the, by the governors of their own parties in the press, savagely attacking the chief, the chief judge, uh, now blocking an incredibly well-qualified nominee because they were worried that he was going to be fair in, in, in another case where partisan gerrymandering came along. You, it, it's a really dangerous thing to a system, whether it's the federal system or the state court system, to have courts getting involved in this deeply political thicket. But it, the danger to the courts is just one value. And ultimately, the people decide their own state constitutions. So if the people say yes, the people say yes, the, we're willing to take that harm to our state judiciary because we think the harm of political gerrymandering, some of the harms that Guy uh, eloquently articulated, is worse. That's a position that the people of a state can take. So I think we, I stand by everything we said in, uh, in Gill and Ruccio about the dangers to the judiciary from doing it. And if the judiciary itself is deciding whether to basically come up with a prohibition against partisan gerrymandering that's not in the state constitution, I don't think the judiciary should do that. But if the people of a state say, yes, we take those risks on, we want a prohibition against partisan gerrymandering, then as a justice of that, of that state, it is your job to enforce the state constitution, even if it is harmful to, you, uh, to the judiciary, and you got to do your level best. And the state of the art right now is the ensemble methodology. It might be something else later, but right now that's really the, the best approach that the judges and justices who are given this job by their state constitution have to, have to undertake. Before we wrap up by asking the effect of the resolution of this North Carolina case on the U.S. Supreme Court case, Guy, I, I want to uh, note that in your essay, The Law of Gerrymandering, you note that the founders were centrally concerned with the question of apportionment, redistricting, and rotten boroughs, that George Washington's only substantive proposal at the convention was that every member of Congress represent no more than 30,000 people to guard against great disparities. And indeed, as, as visitors to the National Constitution Center know, the original proposed First Amendment to the Bill of Rights would have said that after the first enumeration uh, required by the Constitution, uh, there should be no less than uh, one representative for every 40,000 people. T t tell us about the significance of that history for your understanding of a, a, a constitutional prohibition against extreme vote dilution and, and how you think courts should take that into account. Yes, thank you. I mean, I think there are times in which people think that concerns about um, extreme vote dilution is a modern one and do not recognize that um, we as a polity, as a republic, have been struggling from the very beginning with the self-interestedness of our elected officials 
and how it is that we hold them accountable. Um, right. I mean, that's a whole purpose of our checks and balances and separation of power systems is a distrust of the self-interestedness of our elected officials and the ways in which that they can structure the process um, by, say, creating a rotten borough by failure to reapportion that um, allows them to stay in power and not to be held accountable. That that the founding fathers um, and that for a very long time, we've been really worried about these mechanisms and we've been really worried about these types of questions. This is not a modern worry. This is not a worry of the 21st century. Um, and then we've tried to use multiple methods and mechanisms um, to struggle with that question. I agree a lot with, with everything that Misha said in, in his last set of comments. I think part of the problem is you look at a state like North Carolina, North Carolina does not have initiatives and referenda process. So it that makes it hard for the people themselves to figure out what they can do to combat their elected officials when the elected officials decide that they're going to try to manipulate voting systems so that way, which is going to benefit the elected officials at the expense of political competition, at the expense of democratic accountability. So without that mechanism, then the recourse has to be through the courts. Uh, because you could you know, lobby the legislature, but the legislature has a, is self-interested and not doing anything about it. And these are these are not new concerns. These are questions that we've had from the very beginning, and we're trying to we've always been tr trying to think about how do we um, create systems of checks and balances and separation of powers and federalism to protect liberty and to hold our elected officials accountable. And it's these are continuing questions in, in a democracy. Well, let's wrap up by talking about the effects of the North Carolina decision. Misha, if the justices in North Carolina decide to uphold the map, will that and should it moot out the Supreme Court case or not? Yeah, I mean, there were letters submitted on this technical issue about whether it takes the jurisdiction away from the Supreme Court, I, I, you know, there are fair arguments on both sides, but I, I do think that what it shows is the stakes for redistricting in particular uh, of this case are not as high as some people worry. Uh, it, it may be that those stakes are higher uh, on the elections clause interpretation for election administration. Um, the truth of the matter is the North Carolina Supreme Court was the you know, and assuming that the that the CEO Supreme Court was not going to adopt the extreme position of of no courts can't even enforce state prohibitions against partisan gerrymandering. If if the real worry was kind of course enforcing these vague phrases, the North Carolina Supreme Court was really the only Supreme Court uh, in in this cycle that that did anything like this. Every other state Supreme Court that enforced a prohibition against partisan gerrymandering was. Uh, acting under a specific prohibition that would have satisfied what we call our, our clear statement rule. So I think that with North Carolina looking like it's going to most likely reverse its position that the free and equal language in its constitution prohibits partisan gerrymandering, I think the stakes for of the U.S. Supreme Court case for however it comes out, as long as you know the extreme position doesn't get adopted, for the 
for the those who want to fight against partisan gerrymandering are not particularly high. Guy, last word in this wonderful discussion is to you. If the court in North Carolina reverses, will it and should it moot out the case? And what do you think the stakes of the U.S. Supreme Court case are? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I agree again with Misha. Um, I think this is a hard question. I mean, if you listen to the oral arguments and the Harper to North Carolina case, um, it doesn't seem as if the judgment and Moore versus Harper is being questioned. Um, you know, I, I've been of two minds of this um, and checked in with my federal courts colleagues. At first, I thought, look, I think the court doesn't will, will no longer have jurisdiction. Uh, but from the oral arguments, it seemed like the judgment and then the case before the court is not um, is not being questioned. Um, I think the significance of more is is uh, wide. That is, you know, we do need some guidance in terms of what are the limits. Um, how far can state legislatures go? Um, and to the extent that the U.S. Supreme Court can provide that guidance, I think that would benefit our democratic system. Um, and But maybe it might be the case that the court feels like, look, this is an opportunity to punt um, and might take this as, a, as an uh, as an opportunity. But it's a it's a close call. Um, you know, it's not clear exactly what the litigators are, are asking for and to what extent will that will, what they're asking for in North Carolina undermine the judgment and the Moore case. And if it will, then I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court uh, would have the jurisdiction. But, but, but that's that's a bit unclear for me. Thank you so much, Misha Zaitlin and Guillermo Charles, for a superbly clarifying discussion of this crucially important question of partisan gerrymandering. Dear We the People listeners, a central goal of this podcast is to convene thoughtful scholars so that we can reason together and uh, try to achieve uh, understanding about the most difficult constitutional issues in America today. And Guillermo and Misha have really helped us in that endeavor in this wonderful discussion. Guy and Misha, thank you so much for joining. Pleasure. Thank you. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Sam Desai. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Sophia Gardell, Emily Campbell, Liam Kerr, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. And thanks to Emily Campbell for the great idea for the show. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination, civil dialogue, and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.